welcome to another episode of ESG Out Loud. I'm your host, ESG Parity Global Editor Natasha Turner, and I hope you're all on your way to thinking about having a lovely summer. I know I am. I have a stint working at the Greenfields at Glastonbury Festival, followed immediately by a walk from Glastonbury Tour to Tintagel Castle, just to put my personal ESG credentials to the test. And in a similar vein, we'll be running another summer series uh, from and for you all on ESG Clarity this year. So keep an eye out for that. This year, it's going to be focusing more on reflections in the ESG space. And in that similar spirit of reflection, today's episode is going to look back at the highlights from ESG Clarity's podcast so far and some of the debates, topics and guests that have interested you the most. Since launching in 2021, ESG Out Loud has sought to bring together insights from inside and outside the investment industry to discuss topics such as fast fashion, fair tax, regulatory changes and diversity, things that need more than a soundbite or a news story to unpack. And to that end, we've been joined by academics, economists and scientists to complement you guys from the industry from around the world to share their perspectives and research. But one economist in particular caught the attention of our listeners. So here's a clip from my chat with Alex Edmonds from the London Business School. So the paper's called Applying Economics, Not Gut Feel to ESG. Um, and it tries to do exactly what it says on the tin. So often the charge is that, well, ESG investing is so new and finance textbooks are so stuck in the 1990s that we need to completely scrap the old textbooks and come up with something new and fit for purpose in 2023. Um, now, as the writer of a new textbook, I'd like to um, support that claim. So many of your listeners will know the book Principles of Corporate Finance by Breeley, Myers and Allen. That was the book that I read as an undergrad. We were all given at Morgan Stanley. I'm now a co-author of the 14th edition, trying to modernise it to bring about ESG issues. But to be honest, I didn't completely rewrite the book. Many of the principles of the book continue to apply as long as you sort of reapply it to the modern firm where many assets are intangible, not tangible. So what I try to highlight in this new paper was how we can use the tried and tested tools of mainstream finance to handle ESG issues rather than just making some stuff up based on, on gut feel. So let's give one example. So one um, charge that people will currently make is that many valuation methods like net present value, they don't work for ESG investments like carbon capture. Why? Carbon capture is risky. If the project is risky, the discount rate is high and therefore the present value is low. Therefore, this is biased against taking carbon capture investments. But that's not the case because uh, Finance 101 tells you that risk only affects the required return if it's systematic, if it's something that goes up and down with economic conditions. Now, carbon capture technology could be really risky, but whether the tech works or not is unrelated to whether the economy is in a boom or a recession. So that risk is not systematic. It shouldn't affect the discount rate. And therefore, you should give a big green light to carbon capture type investments. And this encourages people to take those investments rather than turn that down. So actually, if you understand mainstream finance properly, then you'll be much more supportive of many ESG investments than you otherwise might. 
Now, people might think, well, why does he need to write a paper to say this? Isn't it obvious from Finance 101 that we only care about idiosyncratic risk? But even if you take the CFA ESG investing certificate, which I generally really respect, if you look at the specimen exam, it has this question, does sustainability increase or decrease the cost of capital? People always think it decreases the cost of capital, when, as I mentioned, many sustainability risks are idiosyncratic. They're specific to the firm. They affect the cash flows, but they don't affect the cost of capital. So that's one part of the paper. There are 10 different myths in the paper that I try to debunk and overturn with, with mainstream finance. And so the nine others, I'll just leave it to the interested reader to <laughs> go through himself or herself. Soon after launching ESG Out Loud, we started running a special series of the podcast, The Sector Specials, where we took a deep dive into particular sectors and their ESG implications. So far, we've looked at technology, materials, property, energy and healthcare. But it was that materials episode that really took off for the series. There are so many differences within the different materials, but in a common, as a common uh, aspect, they do have this potential to drive um, circular economy. They have the, the potential to enable energy transition. I could give you examples like raw materials um, or in terms of, of fashion industry, you know, the different types um, of um, materials that we can now apply to different uh, clothes. Uh, you can make things more make things more sustainable that way. You can have recycling technologies that enable um, other companies to build more sustainable products. You have um, you can have lithium cobalt that will feed uh, the electric vehicles. I mean, with all the problems associated, of course, it's not a, it's definitely not an impact-free uh, sector. Uh, but on the positive side, we do have the, pot the potential to drive the change. And there are also, um, of course, common issues among all the materials in terms of ESG risks. Unfortunately, we know, we've read, uh, we keep reading news about environmental damage. It is a, a reality. We do have um, some cases of uh, human rights violations, labor rights violations. We've heard about um, dam collapses and social unrest caused by um, labor rights violations, uh, people protesting, sacred sites being damaged. I mean, it's not a it's not a sector without impact. Uh, it's actually the contrary, uh, but it's it's a key sector, so we cannot avoid it. We cannot uh, just um, um, put it aside because of the the potential impact or damage. Um, and going back to your question, what's unique? It's unique the the, the role that it plays. Um, it's unique and it's kind of the common, um, they have common ESG issues, uh, but we can't get away from, from the sector, that's what I think. So that was Susanna Cotineau from Main Street Partners speaking there about materials. And you can hear the full episode by subscribing to ESG Out Loud on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Little plug there for the podcast. We've also taken ESG Out Loud on the road, recording episodes at our Global ESG Summit in London last year and at COP26 the year before. 
COPs are always a hectic few weeks, and here's what the investment industry on the ground in Glasgow had to say about it. Hi, I'm Jill Jackson, the CEO of The Big Exchange. Um, I had the great pleasure of attending COP um, on Wednesday, the 3rd of November, on Finance Day, um, in my home city of Glasgow. So no private jets for me, just a short train journey to attend the event. An eventful one, but a short train journey. I think for me, I was delighted to see the commitments that were made um, and pledges that were made from the world leaders. I think I would like to have seen some more you know, legally enforceable action for them to make sure that we, we do deliver on those pledges just due to the time horizon. It's so important that we deliver the change that needs to be delivered. And I, I think for me, one of the things that was potentially missing from it is the action that people can take right now. So making it, how can we make it relevant for people? And there were some good events on um, for consumers. That, so it was, good to, it was good to see that. But I think ultimately... Consumers, when they hear 130 trillion um, as a number, it feels so also unmanageable. I think David Attenborough's speech in particular, you know, was very moving. Um, and I think if we sit back in six months' time and watch that speech again and we've not done anything collectively, um, those world leaders haven't done anything, then we've got a big, a big problem in our hands. So, yeah, I'm hopeful, um, but I just really want to see some action on those, on those pledges. Brilliant, thank you. So I'm Henry Fernandez, uh, Chairman and CEO of MSCI. As many of you know, MSCI uh, is, is a global leader in providing investment tools to the uh, global investment uh, community. Uh, so I'm here in Glasgow for uh, about a week myself. Uh, I will fortunately be here the first week, unfortunately not the second week, but I know there is a lot happening in the second week as well. A lot of my activities are divided into uh, three or four areas. Uh, the first one is um, meeting clients, you know, meeting uh, asset owners, asset managers, banks, insurance companies, uh, corporations, you know, companies. So uh, we, uh, we tried to ascertain who was going to be here and therefore use this week as a, as a marketplace, as a, as a meeting point almost like the old fairs, right, uh, that go back in time to, um, to all gather in one place and uh, meet and talk about one topic, which is, you know, climate change. So uh, it's very concentrated on that. So that's one aspect of, of my activities. Uh, the second one is, um, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to some of the, uh, uh, of, of the events of, uh, of COP26 and, uh, and see and listen to what people are saying, especially Wednesday which is uh, Finance Day, uh, and see what the pronouncements are, what the speeches are, etc. The third uh, uh, area of activity is uh, talking to the media, the mediums of exchange, because those are very important in translating a lot of what we're doing and um, amplifying the messages that, uh, that we're talking to, to people about and explaining you know, what we're doing explaining the issues, discuss, discussing and debating, you know, the problems. So um, that's the, um, you know, the third part uh, of, of what I'm doing. So those are the, the three dimensions. Now, hopefully, um, you know, I get to uh, taste the, uh, the Scottish uh, food here, uh, see a few of the, uh, of the sites, uh, at least, 
from one meeting to going on the uh, from one meeting to another, although not a lot of sightseeing time, I, I imagine uh, the traffic will not be the, that great, you know, for that. And uh, and I hope to stay out of trouble. I hope to stay. Uh, I don't get in the middle of a of a violent protest or anything like that and get caught uh, get get caught there. And that's obviously uh, safety is very important in this uh, in this forum. I'm James Alexander, Chief Executive of UK CIF. This has been an extraordinary week of discussions and engagement with the financial services industry. And I think what we've really done is try to add our voice to the chorus of people internationally calling for governments to step up and change and make the change we want to see. And this COP has been pretty remarkable in the extent of private sector engagement, particularly from financial services, and we've seen amazing announcements. And I think that has helped the UK government to step up its leadership, something we want to push forward, um, and start recognising financial services as a really key role to play here. But I think the important thing to remember is this can't all be outsourced to financial services or to industry. Governments really have to play their part and to step up. We're seeing signs that that's happening. The government's publishing its net zero um, strategy for the UK. It's also publishing its net zero financial services roadmap, mandatory transition plans. You know, this is all pushing us absolutely in the right direction. Um, but I think each actor in this space, whether that's us as individuals, whether it's financial services, real economy, or indeed government, needs to think about the levers that we have individually and collectively and how we can use those to drive us forward. Because the solutions we create have to be aligned with the uh, size and scale of the climate problem we face. Because we'd still talk about a decade of action. Realistically, we've used 20% in that decade of action. There's eight years of action that we've got left. Um, and, you know, some people are saying that their analysis shows that if everybody does everything they've committed to this week, then we'll get to 1.8 degrees. But actually, other research is now saying that even, even if that happens, realistically, we're still looking at 2.4 degrees. And that is catastrophic. Um, and that's before you start to think about any of the wider issues like just transition or other social issues uh, or biodiversity or nature. There is so, so much we need to do. We all have to be focusing on it. And, uh, you know, this COP, I think, though, is a, is a really good place for that um, and, a, and a good turning point where private sector came into the conversation and made its voice heard. So those are just a few highlights of all the episodes we've had over the past few years. And we're really grateful to you for listening to the podcast ever since it launched. Please don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We have many more great discussions to come, but of course, please do always share your thoughts with us on what you'd like to hear and have a great summer. We'll be back with fresh episodes shortly on SoundCloud or iTunes by searching for ESG Out Loud.